Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Great. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you. My name is Marika Tacconi. I'm the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And I am uh, pleased to um, introduce you to a wonderful speaker and a wonderful lecturer. Uh, and this is part of our Moments of Change uh, series. And this event is also uh, co-sponsored by the university libraries, and we're very grateful. Um, just a personal note before I read your bio. Uh, Stephen Shankman is, uh, I think, one of the most um, Broad, broad scholars I know. Uh, you have a very interesting background in classics and in uh, English uh, and philosophy. And we met about, I think, two years ago at a conference of uh, humanities directors. But we met again last September at another conference in Syracuse. And uh, he came over and said, well, because you are a musicologist, I have a few questions related to music. And we started talking about Monteverdi, one of my great passions, as some of you know. Um, and he started describing this research topic that he was working on. And I thought, gosh, this would be perfect for this Moments of Change initiative on the early 17th century. So almost on the spot, I said, would you be interested in coming to Penn State? And so here he is. And we're so happy to have him here. I'm just really, really happy and delighted. Uh, one quick announcement. For those graduate students in the room who were planning on attending Professor Shankman's graduate seminar tomorrow morning, we are having to cancel that because of the, of the weather. We're going to try to get Professor Shankman out of here at 6 AM tomorrow if we possibly can. So um, please take note of that and uh, inform any other graduate students who may have been planning on being there. Stephen Shankman is the UNESCO Chair in Transcultural Studies, Interreligious inter Dialogue and Peace at the University of Oregon. He is also the College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of English and Classics and Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Before his, uh, his appointment at Oregon, he taught at Princeton, Columbia, and Harvard. His work in the Western classical tradition includes Pope's Iliad, Homer in the Age of Passion, published in 1983, and In Search of the Classics, Reconsidering the Classical Tradition, Homer to Valerie and Beyond, published in 1994. His Penguin edition of Pope's Iliad appeared in 1996, and some of his recent work, including uh, um, something co-authored with Stephen Durant, uh, is The Siren and the Sage, Knowledge and Wisdom in Ancient Greece and China, published in 2000, and Early China, Ancient Greece, Thinking Through Comparisons, co-edited with Stephen Durant in 2002, uh, which compares classical traditions. He is the author of Kindred Verses, published in 2000, which is a book of poems. Uh, his poems have appeared in a number of journals, including the 70 Review, Literary Imagination, and the Poetica magazine. His book, Other Others, Levinas, Literature, Transcultural Studies, is forthcoming in SUNY's series in Contemporary Jewish Thought. He is also the chair of the Committee on Intercultural Studies of the International Comparative Literature Association. As the host of a cable access TV show known as UO Today, uh, produced at the University of Oregon as an outreach effort of the Oregon Humanities Center, he has interviewed more than 300 guests. I don't know how you have time for that, but 400 and counting. <laughs> 
Professor Shankman's lecture today is co-sponsored by university libraries, as I mentioned. It is entitled Eruptions of the Ethical Baroque, and it is part of the Institute's Moments of Change initiative devoted this year to the early 17th century. Please welcome Professor Shankman. Thank you, Mark. It's uh, delightful to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Can you hear me? I have two lavalier mics, but they don't sound like they're doing a lot, whole lot. Whoops, okay. I feel like if I don't get out of here, I can jet out of here with these two things uh, on my own. Got it? Both of them? Okay. So uh, I'm looking forward to the. I've never done a PowerPoint presentation before, so this is <laughs> this is a. A maiden voyage, so I hope uh, hope it goes according to to schedule uh, as opposed to the weather. Uh, so um, there it is; it's all up there. Eruptions. I don't even have to read. To throw away my reading glasses. Uh, so I just want to let you know what you're in for, okay? Today, so you have a, an idea, and. Uh, so it's going to be in three parts. And the first part is going to be on Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered and Monteverdi's Combattimento. The second on uh, Walter Benjamin, Rembrandt, and Shakespeare. And the third part is going to be on something I'm calling Baroque modernity and on Francois Couperin's Lesson de Tenebre, an absolutely gorgeous uh, piece from the 18th century, Baroque piece, and Salon's Tenebrine, as you can see, the Tenebra, Tenebrae, they, they, they're very closely related. And in fact, uh, the, the poem by, uh, by Paul Salon was uh, inspired by his hear, going to a performance of, of Couperin's. We okay? Yes, okay. So uh, what is the Baroque? Start out with that, and I won't talk about it much longer. Uh, some people have even, don't even know whether the Baroque exists or not. Now what happened to the signal? That's what I mean. <laughs> Did it go to sleep? How do you wake it up? There. It's very sleepy. Now, it's, why is it doing that? It's okay. So what is the Baroque? As I mentioned, what is the Baroque? You know, th these things are supposed to help you, this technology. So let's, uh, I, I was actually, I'm opposed to PowerPoint because I always think of Martin Luther King. I have a dream. I mean, to me, it's a, PowerPoint is a charisma buster. But uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use it because we have, you know, we have images and we have music and it's just easier than, you know, bringing in 80,000 different pieces of equipment. Uh, so, you know, there have been people talking about what the Baroque is, and Barocco is a Portuguese word for the imperfect shape of a pearl. Then Barocco, people have talked about it. It's a very technical term from rhetoric where uh, it's a sort of a disp something is disproportionate. The syllogism doesn't quite work out. Uh, and so I've studied all these theories of the Baroque, and I decided I would come up with my, with my own. Uh, Gilles Deleuze's book on the Baroque uh, is, is interesting, but um, that's not my approach. Uh, I, I'm interested in, in Heinrich Würflin's book, The Art Historian, called Renaissance and Baroque. That has uh, uh, 
has, has influenced me. And what Zoflin talks about is, uh, you know, roughly, the, if you think of the Renaissance, again, gross uh, exaggeration, as, uh, as classical, as neoclassical, as emphasizing decorum and uh, a, a kind of seamless relationship between subject matter and content, between tenor and vehicle. The Baroque tweaks that and adds a kind of dissonance. And uh, so it, it, it uh, let, let's just, let's, and, and so Werflin uh, 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 has uh, interested me. So let's just talk briefly about the, the Renaissance as opposed to the Baroque moments of change. Uh, uh, the person speaking this, the author, is God. Uh, and it's from Pico's Oration on the Dignity of Man of 1486, one of the great documents that people use to talk about Renaissance humanism. And Pico imagines God as telling human beings, you are constrained by no limits. In accordance with your own free will, we have set you at the world's center that you may from there more easily observe what is ever in the world. So again, Renaissance perspective in painting, the human subject is in the middle, constructing the universe from that perspective of the human subject. Uh, but what interests me about the Baroque, what I'm gonna call the ethical Baroque, and I guess I should have made this a PowerPoint slide here, is the way in which that sovereignty of the ego is disrupted by the subject's response to the other human being, that suddenly the person is no longer the center of the universe, the other human being is the center of the universe. Because I've just written a book on Emmanuel Levinas, so this is very influenced by his thought. So it's a, uh, uh, is, that, is that pretty clear? It's where the sovereignty of the subject is disrupted by one's experience of the other human being for whom you are responsible. Uh, so Levinas calls this not, he calls it the l'humanisme de l'autre, the humanism of the other human being, not the human being at the center, but the other being at the center and the human responding to that other. So the first part of my remarks, uh, is everybody with me? Okay. Uh, Tasso's Jerusalem uh, delivered and Monteverdi's Combattimento. And I just want to take a, uh, a couple of passages from Tasso and just set this scene uh, for you. Don't, don't, don't look at it. Don't look at it now. It's very distracting. That's what I mean by charisma buster. Just don't look at it for now. If you can bear it, look at me because I'm going to describe what's going on in this incredible scene so relevant to today, so incredibly relevant to today. Because what Tasso's poem is about, I think 1575, not quite where we are today, although the combatimento is 1624, so we're okay. But I should say that, of course, Wurflin thought of Tasso as being a Baroque poet, as opposed to Ariosto, who he thought of as a Renaissance poet. But the scene is, the scene is very relevant today. The Crusades, Christians, trying to recover the Holy Land from the Muslims. So the Christians go to Jerusalem, and they fight. And uh, the Christian warrior, Tancredi, who had fallen in love with the Muslim warrior, Clorinda, he doesn't know. I guess he knows that Clorinda's black, and she's from Ethiopia. Very interesting. He does, he's not aware 
that she's a Muslim. He's not even aware that she's a woman or who she is, but he sees somebody, he's in love with her. And then they meet again on the battlefield, and she's got her mask, her, her uh, helmet on, he's got his helmet on, and he, he, he kills her in battle. And then he takes the visor off and sees what he has done. So you have to realize, I think, Battle of Lepanto, 1574, was it? So you think of Venice. You think of all this triumphalism of having defeated the Turks. Uh, and uh, then you have this moment, which to me uh, is an extraordinary moment of, uh, of, uh, of pathos. On the one hand, yes, the Christian has triumphed and defeated. Oh, oh what happened? So Clorinda, having been... Uh, uh, having been uh, uh, knifed to bits by, by, by uh, Tancredi, says, okay, before I die, I would like you to baptize me as a Christian. So he goes and takes his helmet, or it's her helmet, I think it's her helmet, and puts it in, in water and baptizes her just before she's about to die, and then she goes up to heaven. Okay? Seems great, triumphalist moment. But in Tasso's poem, the poem is haunted by this, by this moment. It's not that simple in Tasso. Uh, uh, so, uh, and I'm going to now just read to you in English the, just a very small segment. And I call this the F-sharp lecture because in my primitive musicology, I'm going to be talking about one note, an F-sharp. I've been listening to this piece for a long time, the, 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 the Monteverdi, and the end of it has always just killed me. And there's just a dissonance there that I could never quite get, an irresolution. And I talked to my musicologist friends. I've gotten very complicated uh, explanations of it. And I'm not going to share those with you, but I'm going to just give a very simple, simple explanation of it. And Marika can, uh, can, uh, she can uh, elaborate further. So here are the, just the two passages at the end of the combattimento, which, uh, Tasso, which uh, uh, Monteverdi takes around 1624, in one of his madrigals. Now, madrigals generally are supposed to have a happy ending. This one is definitely not happy. And even Monteverdi, in his preface, says the whole house was weeping. You know, everyone was filled with compassion and weeping at the death of Christ. He's supposed to go to heaven, you know, but everybody is just absolutely mortified by it. So, uh, Canto 12, uh, stanza 67, a little way off in the cranny of a mountain, a tiny stream had its murmuring source. There he ran and filled his helmet in the spring and sorrowing returned to the noble and reverend rite, that is the baptism. He felt his hand trembling while it freed and revealed the face, la fronte, as yet unknown. He saw it. He knew it and remained without voice or motion. Ai vista, ai canoscenza, ah, the sight, ah, the recognition. He did not die outright, and actually the Italian is pretty ambiguous there. Non mori già. It's not clear, there's no subject there, so you don't know whether he died outright, he died or she died. And I think that's part of the, of the, of the because there's no, there's no pronoun and there's no noun, which would tell you the gender. And the idea is he's so consumed with the other, it seems to me, 
Tancredi, so consumed with the other, that they're one here. He has the other, as it were, in his skin, uh, Clorinda. He did not, she did not die outright. Rather, he summoned up for the moment all his powers and set them to guard his heart. And repressing his grief, he bent his efforts to give, giving her life with water, with whom, with the sword, he killed. While he released the sound of the holy words, she was with joy transfigured and smiled, and through the act of her joyful and living death, very Baroque paradox, she seemed to say, heaven is opening, I depart in peace. And I ask you, when you listen to the music, how peaceful is her departure? And here you see the score. And let's listen to the ending of Monteverdi's Combattimento. feel happy? You feel triumphant? So that note, again, I'm not a professional musicologist. It's haunted me. This ending has haunted me. So uh, the way I, so I tell my musicologist friends and, you know. So what's happening in this piece is that there are a lot of contrasts, and that's very Baroque, these contrasts throughout this combattimento. Uh, it starts in D major, but it's moving at the end. It's in a D minor key. And if he would have stayed in the D minor key, pardon my singing, the ending would be in pace. So you would have gone from E to F, a half step, you know. But instead, you get an F sharp, 
there's this extra half step that just has this haunting quality, even though it's a transition to supposedly a more triumphant uh, major chord. It's some, there's something about that reach, something about that dissonance that creates a kind of feeling, even though officially it's resolved. Although I have a good friend who's a musicologist says this is one of the weirdest resolutions. She says it's totally suspended. It's a suspension, a reiterated suspension. I'll let Marika explain that to you. But, uh, but, but the point is, uh, again, Monteverdi and the Baroque, Monteverdi himself, you know, uh, was trying for these kinds of dissonances, which is part of the, uh, in fact, the, the main issue with him and Artuzzi, that he was felt to be too avant-garde. And people have told me that this is one of the most avant-garde pieces of its time, really extraordinary. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, and of course, Monteverdi's whole work seems to be suspended between the, the Renaissance a modal system and the tonal system that's not going to be established until the 18th century. So this ambiguity, it seems to me, the, the otherness, the otherness of Clorinda and the compassion that uh, Tancredi feels for her here completely overwhelms the, uh, the triumphalist Christianity that you could uh, uh, ascribe to it. It's all, and, and this questioning is already there in the Tasso text. And Monteverdi with his seconda pratica in which what you try to do is make the music as much as possible express the poetry, just takes that irresolution to me, to my ear, uh, another step further. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to now go to the second part of this presentation, uh, which is Walter Benjamin, Rembrandt, and Shakespeare. And, uh, and I'm going to say something. If any of you read Walter Benjamin, this is, the most, this is the most abstract part, I think, of this talk right now. I'm going to try to explain it as simply as I can. Walter Benjamin, in 1925, wrote a book which is called The uh, Origins of the, Tra of the German uh, Tragic Drama. The word is Trauerspiel, the morning play. And there he reflects on the nature of, the, of what the Baroque is. Uh, German, the, has anybody read any of these plays? They are, you know, von Lowenstein, they're absolutely almost impossible to read. They are so gnarled and knotty. But these German broke Trauerspiel plays, morning plays, from the era of the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, and they try to be allegories. They try to be allegories where you have these uh, kings and queens, and it, it, they try to be Christian allegories. But they never, they never uh, deliver on the allegory. That is, the, the circumstances that are depicted are so awful that somehow it never delivers on the, on the allegory. Uh, and so, as Susan Handelman says about uh, this Benjaminian reading, the Baroque Trauerspiel is a secularized form of medieval mystery play wherein history is no longer the story of redemption and where there is no longer any fulfilling eschatology, nothing at the end that saves, no allegory that is salvific to it. So, uh, Benjamin, very brilliant, I think I, I put him in the, in the category, his essay of the ethical Baroque, and what do I mean by that? Again, this is the, one of the more complicated parts 
of this lecture that actually is going to demand that I have a drink of water. The Baroque is disruptive. Okay, Baroque as disruptive. So Benjamin, who's living in the wake of German Romanticism, of Goethe, uh, German Romanticism, that part of German, German Romanticism that sees itself as uh, recreating Greek Hellenism, okay. in which, once again, there's a perfect correspondence between tenor and vehicle so that you're not even aware that you're experiencing art. You're simply enchanted by art. You're enchanted by it. Now, if you're enchanted by something and it creates for you an eternal present as you listen to it, there are certain ethical implications of, that, that are, of this that are not necessarily so good. Uh, George Steiner, in a very histrionic way, uh, said, how was it possible? that the people that ran the concentration camps could listen to Mozart in the morning and gas human beings in the afternoon. How is this possible? And I think it goes to the, to the, the roots of aestheticism and the fact that art is Dionysiac. It does enchant you. Music does enchant you. And it makes you forget the world and your responsibilities to others. So Benjamin's thesis, as strange as it might seem, what he saw in these German plays that are impossible to read, they're absolutely awful to read, they have, they weird, they have this weird sort of barbaric power, is that um, they try to deliver on the allegory. Okay? Now, when you're in the world of allegory, you're in the world of diachrony or in time. You're working through time rather than, and history rather than being in the, a timeless present. Okay? And so you're waiting for the truth to be delivered, and you have to wait in time. So you become aware of yourself as a historical being, as opposed to when you're in the Dionysiac uh, moment and frenzy, you, you, you're not even aware of yourself as living in. You're in the timeless present. And then, he said, when the plays don't deliver, and you look back at the plays, they just seem to record the absolutely chaotic ruins of, of history itself, which promises no redemption. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Do you have any idea? So you're left with the ruins that actually, and just pure history itself, you're back in history. So what these plays do is, is have you not reflect on some allegorical salvation, but in fact the way in which that is, uh, doesn't happen. Uh, uh, so, uh, and then he has a, let's see, this quote here. So what I would say is, this may be too heavy for now, this is me. What I'm calling the ethical Baroque eschews, does away with both the thoroughly enchanting and amoral classicism on the one hand, and it eschews as well the reduction of the emotional and moral complexities of what it represents to a predetermined, and allegedly salvific, salvational, allegorical meaning. Okay? It promises it, but it doesn't deliver on it. Are there any questions before I go on? Because as I say, this is the most uh, theoretically you know, uh, challenging, I think, part of this talk. And I, I'm just going to stop and ask you, do you have any idea what I'm talking about?
Let me give you a concrete example of this, not something that from one of these plays, which are just awful. They're awful to read. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Who's read that play recently or seen it? Okay. Something we both. Okay. Now, in his book on the Baroque, German Baroque drama, Benjamin talks about Shakespeare and he says, Shakespeare, I'll give you this quote, is really suspended between the elemental, that is, he gives you life really as it is, human beings, living and breathing human beings, not allegorical figures, and allegory. He still lives in a world of allegory. And his work, we don't think of that because we're so influenced by German classicism. We think Shakespeare is the poet of you know, realism and so on. But in a sense, you can't understand a play like The Merchant of Venice. So The Merchant of Venice, on the surface, says there is the Jewish letter and the Christian spirit, right? The Jews are these literalists. They even will cut the heart out of, uh, of Christians for a pound of flesh. They're incapable of mercy. And we need to become crazy. You know, Ann Coulter said this the other day. Remember when she said, Jews need to be perfected. There it is, the allegory. The Jews need to be perfected. You can go on YouTube and hear a riff on, on that, uh, on, on, on Ann Coulter and this. So uh, let me try to rein this in. So if you think of The Merchant of Venice, yes. So, and then, of course, there's uh, Porsche's famous speech. Uh, uh, what is it? The something of mercy? Uh, the quality of mercy is not strange. I don't think she's so merciful, to tell you the truth. I don't think she, she really tries to screw him at the end. And those Christians at the end of the play, give him a halter gratis, says one of them, you know. Uh, we're not going to ch charge him interest on his halter. I mean, the Christians are represented to me in that play as very problematic, including Antonio, who spits on Shylock. So I, on the one hand, the play gives you this Christian allegory, and on the other hand, it calls it into question. And Shylock, one of the moving things about him is that he's saying as an elemental, to use Benjamin's term, rather than just an allegory figure, I am not an allegory. I am not just an allegory. And he says, famous speech, if this moves, oh, my god, I left out this whole bit. Oh, I think we're not up to that yet. Hmm. You know what? I left all this stuff out. I've got to go back. Okay, I'm just going to go back. Do you mind? Are you with me? Is this chaotic? Okay. I'll go back to the Rembrandt. Shakespeare, this famous speech of Shylock. About Antonio. You know, Antonio is the merchant of Venice, not, 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 not uh, Shylock. And why do you want it, this pound of flesh from this guy? And Shylock says, he hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed by the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? 
if you poison us, do we not die? Hath not a Jew eyes? Actually, there's a Palestinian film, or it's, a, it's an Israeli film that depicts the Palestinians as actually saying this to the to rather cruel Israeli captives and saying, hath not a Jew eyes. It's an interesting, it's a great phrase. Something interesting about this is what a reason I would call it the ethical Baroque. You notice anything odd about this speech? It's in prose. It's in prose, not in verse. So if you think of verse as being uh, the Dionysiac, creating this, this realm of art, Prose disrupts that and, and actually uh, opens up the possibility for the ethical. And so this is a difficult quote from, or not that from Emmanuel Levinas, Totality and Infinity. To poetic activity in a Dionysiac mode is opposed the language that at each instant dispels the charms of rhythm, Addressing the other, le discours, addressing the other, is rupture, a breaking of rhythm, which enraptures and transports the interlocutor's prose. So what, pro, what prose does is disrupt the Dionysiac. And I think that Shakespeare, by presenting this in prose as opposed to his vintage iambic pentameter, blank verse, is trying to disrupt the, uh, uh, I, I call this, um, the one moment in the play where the equivalence between Jew and Christian is explicitly represented by Shakespeare in this disruptive moment that I would call an eruption of the ethical Baroque. But what I forgot to do is give you another example, which is from Rembrandt in painting. Do you have a question? No? Are you with me? Okay. So Rembrandt. So one in Shakespeare, and now I'll go to painting. Uh, this uh, uh, section from Genesis, famous uh, scene, which is called actually in the Hebrew tradition, not the sacrifice of Isaac, but the akedah, meaning the binding of Isaac, because there is no sacrifice. If you look at it typologically, yes, P, uh, the Christian tradition has looked at this as a moment where God sacrifices his son. It's one of the problems with allegory according to my reading, which is very radical. So you have to hold on to your seats. This is an extremely radical reading of this passage. And I submit that Rembrandt is the one that suggested this to me. It's his fault, OK? So remember, God says, Abraham, you've got to kill your son. And he does. He takes him to Mount Moriah. Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But Adonai's messenger called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham, he said, Hineni, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do not do anything to him. That's how the scene ends. Don't do it. It doesn't happen. So I was looking at Rembrandt. I have a very long history with this painting in St. Petersburg, Russia. This, to me, is, again, one of the quintessential moments for me of the 
eruption of the ethical Baroque. It's not the greatest slide in the world, so you have to use your imagination a bit. It depicts exactly this moment in the text. And this is part of Rembrandt's Protestant Baroque, as it were. They didn't care that much about the allegory. They wanted, a lot of the Protestants wanted to get into the moment, the historical, the real moment of these texts, rather than immediately, in Catholic fashion, allegorize it. And so very, very dramatically uh, uh, depicting the interruption. You see the knife out of the hand there? It looks like a feather in the air. And, uh, but what's very important is, is, well, I'll come back to that. But you can look at it in regard to things that, uh, that Rembrandt, other possibilities. There's the Caravaggio, I think 1603. Rembrandt's is 1635. We're still in the early 17th century. And I'll be comparing these in a moment. And there is Rembrandt's teacher, Lastman, and you see here the influence, you see that, but the knife is still in the hand as it is in Caravaggio. So you don't have this moment of interruption so dramatically represented. Also with the Caravaggio, the knife in the hand. Notice in this, the knife is out of the hand, but I, what, what I want to, and this is, a, this is my argument, it's very radical, extremely radical. Notice the plays with the faces and the hands. Now the rabbis, the, the rabbis say, the rabbis say that Abraham here turned white through worry of what he had to do. He actually turned white. You see the Caravaggio, he doesn't have much a favorite model of his. He wasn't, he didn't have much hair to even turn white. You see this cranium that, why are you disturbing me? But this Abraham is very worried, and if you actually, as I have, and I'll tell you about this afterwards if you'd like, seen this painting very, very close up without glass, you can actually see tears of compassion coming down, uh, I actually have my painter, uh, down the left eye of, of Abraham. But notice the faces, notice the faces. Abraham has covered the face of Isaac, why? Why has he covered the face of Isaac with those beefy fingers of his? Well, if you read the Quran and you read about this passage, uh, the, 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 in, in the Quran, it says, you need to face me, the son says. It's not clear in the, in the Quran whether it's Ishmael or, uh, or uh, Isaac. It's a whole other issue. Dad, you must place me, Lil Jabin, face down. And then a commentary, commentator, El Tabari says, why face down? Because if you saw the face, you could not go through with this. If you saw the face, you could not go through with it. That's the wonderful Arabic commentator, El Tabari. So the angel, Abraham is looking at the angel. Notice that the angel the Malach Adonai, the messenger from God, is sort of the same age as Isaac. Uh, notice, if, you, if it were a better slide, the shape of the angel's nose and the shape of Abraham's nose are kind of similar. Okay? Here's my radical reading. And that's this. That the Malach Adonai, the messenger from God, is 
the face of the other, saying, Thou shalt not kill. It is the face of the other. So Abraham tries to cover the actual face, but he sees the face. The angel is the face. And as Levinas says, uh, God leaves his trace, since God is transcendent, not there, only in the face of the other human being to which you respond uh, uh, with uh, giving and with uh, responsibility. So that's, that's my reading of that. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, in the history of religion, there was nothing unusual about a god demanding that a, chi that a, that a child be murdered. I mean, religion has often uh, uh, been the, 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 the uh, given sanction for the most horrible, brutal crimes. But this is a kind of a different, which is don't do it. Don't do it. That's the key. And there you see, if you think of Abraham, you know, this rather, as I say, Caravaggio's rather cruel rendering in comparison with the humanity of the Rembrandt, 1635. And uh, there are some similarities in the body of Christ descending from the cross and Isaac. And I mentioned that this is not an allegory. Maybe shades of an allegory here. As I said, you could see this as being uh, uh, prefiguring. But I don't think that's what this painting is, is about. Now I'm going to move to the last part. I want to know how you're all doing. So let's see. When did we begin here? I don't want to put you to sleep. This is now the last part, and it's getting heavy again. It's going to get heavy again. Okay. This last part is called Couperin's Leçon de Tenebre and Paul Celan's Tenebrae, which he wrote in 1957, and I'll say something about Celan. <coughs> so Paul Celan probably uh, the most famous, for many, post-war poets, uh, a Jewish poet. He was a Holocaust survivor uh, who committed suicide in 1965 or 7, I can't remember, uh, traumatized by his, his experience of, of the Holocaust. Uh, married a uh, uh, Catholic woman. Uh, whose mother, when she found out that her daughter was marrying a nice Jewish boy, joined a convent. Uh, he, she, uh, Celan and his wife, what's her name now? I don't remember. Went to a, uh, a, a, a concert, a performance of this incredible uh, Baroque work by Francois Couperin. Karen's early 18th century. The Leçon de Tenebre. So what are the Lessons de Tenebre? What is the Tenebre service? So Tenebre or Tenebrae Factae Sunt. Everything went dark. Everything went dark when Christ died on the cross. I think it's Matthew, isn't it? Matthew, I think, in the Vulgate. Everything went Tenebre. So it was called Dark Masses. Uh, and it took the Lamentations of Jeremiah, which I'll get back to in a moment, uh, and it allegorized them. So what's being lamented in this, in this dark, everything, darkness has to do also with 
you have all the disciples around Jesus, and they're all abandoning him one by one, and as each disciple abandons Jesus, on analogy to the fact that Jerusalem was abandoned in 586, at the destruction of the first temple, the allegory is the first temple was destroyed, sorry, the, the, the literal meaning, first temple was destroyed, 586, allegorical meaning, Christ was abandoned by his disciples. Each one leaves him until the la only he is left. The lights, the candles go out until there is total darkness. Tenebrae facti, tenebrae facti sunt. But if you read Catholic dictionaries of the time, tenebrae, the name of Ceylon's poem, has other meanings. The darkness, they say this in the the darkness of the Jewish people. Because, one, they kill Jesus. Two, because they don't see the light and become converted to Christianity. So the tenebrae, if you're following this, has that, came to have that meaning in the allegorical tr uh, Christian tradition. And you find this in Catholic encyclopedias. And in fact, I know people who have said who have been taunted as Jew killers when they've been in parts of the country where there you know, not too many Jews. So there is uh, Salon hearing this mass. Uh, another, another thing to think of. So you have, again, this, this, this allegory, something, again, you should be aware of. The text of the Lamentations of Jeremiah is the liturgical text read on the most somber of all Jewish, we call holidays, called Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. What happened on the ninth of Av? One, 586 BCE, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then, miraculously, in 70 AD, same date, the Romans destroyed the second temple. So what one, then, the liturgical text, what one does in this uh, holiday, in this commemora commemoration, is you remember the cat catastrophes that have beset the Jewish people, and of course, the greatest catastrophe of them all, the Holocaust. So there is Salon, as a post-Holocaust, as a Holocaust survivor, sort of hearing this incredible, enchanting music of Couperin, and trying to reflect on that. And so he writes this poem called Tenebrae. And uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, show it to you. It's, he's a very obscure poet. This is one of the more understandable ones. But what I would say is, and this will go back when I call the modern Baroque, it's interruptive. So my argument would be that, and a lot of people have talked about this, that there is something about modernism itself which is Baroque. And there have been books that have been written on the Baroque nature of modernity, this disruptive quality of modernity. And my argument in this third part is that Salon's poem, Tenebrae, disrupts this enchanting and rather lacquered surface of Couperin's Lesson de Tenebre, which is unaware of 
its sort of historical involvement in what would be a, you know, a very, very catastrophic event. So, and I'll explain that, at least from Salon's perspective. So let's listen to this. I mean, this is inc incredible. And the, uh, the, 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 the beginning of it with Alfred Deller's great countertenor, Incipit Lamentatio Hermiae Prophetae. Here begins the lamentations of the prophet Jeremiah. And remember, what Jeremiah is reflecting on is the fall of Jerusalem and why it happened. The fall of Jerusalem and why, how could it have been abandoned? The Jews must have been done something wrong. And that's what you do in Tisha B'Av. What could I have done? What could I do to be a better uh, human, human being? And so let's listen to this. incredibly killing pieces and it just does that again and again how does the city sit solitary that was full of people and again that by analogy becomes the, the, the disciples leaving Jesus and then Silan writes this poem as a response and it's clearly about a concentration camp and he's reflecting on, wait a second, Jesus was a Jew, okay? He was, he was crucified. And, and, and so let's think about that. Let, let's, let's, what would be a, 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 a kind of a, a meditation from the perspective of a Holocaust survivor on the meaning of the crucifixion? And first, as I, I don't expect you, it's very obscure. But, so you have these prisoners, and actually in the concentration camp, they're near to each other. They're near to each other. They're about to enter. I mean, this is very somber. They're about to enter the gas chambers. Tenebrae. Near we, near we are, Lord. Near and graspable. Grasped already, Lord clawed into each other as if each of our bodies was your body, Lord. Pray, Lord, pray to us. We are near. Wind blown, we went there, went there to bend down to the trough and the crater, went to the watering hole, Lord. It was blood. It was what you shed, Lord. It shone. It cast your image into our eyes, Lord. Eyes and mouth stand so open and void, Lord. We have drunk, Lord, the blood and the image that was in the blood. Pray, Lord, we are near. And I'm now going to 
even if you don't know German, I want you to hear Paul Celan reading his own poem. And I want you to listen particularly to the last syllable, even if you don't know German. said Naha, Naha, Nah. He's in my mind, to my mind. I've read this a, I, I can I can show this to you. Salon is giving the you know these horrible images you have of the pi of the corpses piled on top of each other, the open mouths, the vulnerable open mouths. He's giving the faces back to the Jews that had been taken away by the by the National Socialists, not actually having you see this face with the open mouth. It cast your image into our eye, your blood cast our image, your image into our eyes, Lord. Eyes and mouth stand so open and void, Lord. We have drunk, Lord, the blood and the image that was in the blood, Lord. Not, not easy. What does it mean to have drunk the image? Here's my quick interpretation of it. Jew killer. When a Christian looks into the eyes of a Jew, at least according to the Catholic encyclopedias of the, of, of the uh, early to, to mid uh, 20th century, before Vatican II, when the Pope said anti-Semitism was anti-Christian, you see the face of a Jew, you don't see a human being, you see, and you don't see the image of God. Image, built. That word built is the German translation in the Rosen, Rosen uh, Zweig and Buber translation of the Hebrew word zelem, which means the image of God. To see the image of God in another is to treat that person as a human and to be responsible for that person. But they have drunk the image. They've drunk the image that when a Christian, or who's thinking very allegorically, sees a Jew, sees Christ killer. 
and sees those who are dark because they haven't accepted the light and therefore less than human and so on. So I think what, what Ceylon is reflecting on the cruelty of allegory, the way in which allegory actually can deprive the human. So for allegory to be disrupted, as Shakespeare disrupts allegory, I would call this a gesture of the ethical Baroque. And I think that by Ceylon's interrupting Couperin uh, in that way, it's that sort of gesture. So uh, eruptions of the ethical Baroque, which disrupt the serenity of art and haunt us. Eruptions which reveal the face, fronte, of Clorinda, in both Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered and Monteverdi's Combattimento. An eruption that reveals to Rembrandt's Abraham the face of his son Isaac, and which interrupts what was to be an imminent slaughter. An eruption which forces us to encounter in disruptively sober prose Shylock's Jewish eyes, and which in Ceylon's arguably modern Baroque poem, Tenebrae, or Tenebrae as he says, interrupts, but too late tragically, the profoundly enchanting pathos of Couperin's Leçon de Tenebre. I think that's enough for today. Thank you very much. Men hodet, absolutely, yeah. But uh, no, those are great. Those are great uh, uh, questions. Um, I was, I just, my brain. I'm on West Coast time, so I'm not sure what time it is. Oh, the, the angel again. You can't think of angels in terms of Christian theology. This is a Malach Adonai. You know, uh, this, this is not a Christian scene. This is a scene from the Hebrew Bible. And Rembrandt, who lived in the Jewish section of Amsterdam, who had a, good, a very good friend whose name was uh, uh, Manasseh ben Israel, one of the most learned rabbis of the time. And as I say, part of the Protestant Baroque is to go back to that, to that uh, what they call the Old Testament text and actually get at the dramatic aspect of it and not jump to the allegorical. So to think about even angels from the Talmud are not totally relevant to this because this is simply the word in the Hebrew, malak adonai, something sent from God. So there's no theology around it. This is a pre-theological word, something sent from God. So to call it an angel is really a mistranslation of the word malak in the Hebrew. That, that's, what, that's what I would say about that. And that's why we have to to me, that's part of the disruptive no nature of the Baroque. And again, you could say French thought and Levinas, but his notion of the other really comes deeply from, uh, the, uh, from the Talmudic tradition, from the Jewish tradition. And there's all kinds of different French views of the other, and his is not the usual view uh, of the other. That's a whole other. And that's why I call my book Other Others, because I'm, I'm talking about the other, not in the way that the other is used in post-colonial criticism, not that other, a different other, which I, I see as coming, you know, and the, part, the point of the book was to look at this other other in traditions both in the West but in other traditions, in Chinese, in Buddhism, in, and so on. So again, I would say this is not an angel. This, to, to translate it as angel 
is to already begin, excuse me, I don't mean this, but the, the narrative of potential violence, because it's a Malach, it's simply a messenger from God, Malach Adonai. Yes, the, the question is, have I read Martin Buber and, have, and I've been, have I been able to trace this notion of the Tao back? And this is a complicated, I think I'm out of water here with Buber, but um, my approach is much more influenced by Levinas than Buber. I don't know if I have to go into the details of it. But the problem with Buber from Levinas' perspective is that when you thou somebody and you're an I, you know, he has the I thou and the I it, there's still something in it for you as an I. Because to, to, thou, to thou somebody, you're entering this vision, as he calls it, this, this between, where you, know, you, you get to have a really nice experience of vowing somebody. But for Levinas, he says your relationship to the other is not symmetrical, it's asymmetrical. The other is higher than you, the other is totally separate from you, and only then can you have ethics when the other is totally other. So for him, Buber was just too... So I, 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 the, the, I, I'm taking, Levinas is much more important to me than Buber uh, in, in my own thinking about what I'm calling the ethical Baroque. And I, I, Benjamin to me, as I say, Benjamin is, is to me very important. He's actually talking about the Baroque. He's talking about Baroque drama. And uh, those are my, that's my lineage, as it were. My jia, as the Chinese say, my family, my... Uh, a school, as it were. That's, that's a good question, but to me that puts him in the category of the Shakespeare, who also, as, as you know, Coleridge said about Shakespeare and Milton. Is there a Miltonist in here? I think, I think that's anyway. Uh, Col is, who's the Miltonist? Sorry, I don't want to offend you by saying this. I don't want to offend you, but you know this. Coleridge said, you know, uh, the two great masters in, in English poetry, Shakespeare and Milton. Shakespeare turns himself into everybody else. Milton turns everything into him. Uh, I've been trying to look at Milton from the point of view of the ethical Baroque, and I just can't get out of it. I can't get out of his brain, out of, his, out of, his, out of him. So to me, Monteverdi does this. Uh, Shakespeare does this. Uh, Rembrandt does this. Yes. Yeah. Good, I mean, good point. I'm just, I'm just commenting on what I see and what I hear. Uh, you know, I don't, again, it's not the, bio, the biographical fallacy to me or whatever a fallacy. I'm just interested in the art and how it, how it moves me and trying to understand why it moves me and the way it moves me. And, but you're right. I know he was, you know, he was all concerned about money and, you know, and the mistress and, you know, all that Sasha and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 some ugly stuff. I'm not saying these people are angels. In, in your sense of the word. <laughs> yeah. I don't, well, again, I just, I just feel this extra half step just takes it in some. But yes, officially it's peaceful. I think that's what he's getting at the tension between the tri official triumphalism and the actual feelings of it. And, uh, you know, this is maybe, I have a, a friend, it's a very tragic case, whose child was, died at the age of 16, and there was a memorial service. It was a sudden, sudden death through, uh, no one's sure, dancing, and that was it. And there was a funeral in a church, and the, uh, the, uh, his mother-in-law got up and said, and she was fairly fundamentalist, and said, uh, you know, he's in a much better place. This is, you know, he's in heaven. And 
that was the moment at which this, the father just totally lost his faith. He was absolutely furious. He was so inconsolable. And to have this sort of sugar coating on it was so out of step with what he actually, his actually emotions were feeling at that moment. I mean, maybe he could have gotten to that stage later. I think Monteverdi's getting at the difference between theological uh, you know, uh, correctness and emotional uh, reality. Music. That's why I didn't say anything about that kind of thing. You know, I, I, please, you, can, you, can you translate that into... But the key is, you see, it's unanticipated. That change in key is unanticipated. It's the lack of anticipation that gives it this feeling that something weird has just happened. It's, it's, well, just in the Hebrew, it's malach, malach Adonai. Messenger of God. Yeah. Thank you.